In this episode, we're going to be talking about a wide range of topics related to gender identity. Some of the terms we use might mean different things to different people, so we thought we would just set out a few definitions to give you an idea of what we mean by them. So starting with gender identity, that would be a person's inner sense of themselves as male, female, or somewhere in between or outside of male and female. Trans is an umbrella term referring to a range of gender identities uh, or those people who find that their gender identity or expression differs from the sex that they were assigned at birth. In terms of trans men, it would generally be people that were assigned female at birth who later identify as male or mask. And for trans women, it would be people who were assigned male at birth who identify as trans women or as femme or feminine. In terms of non-binary people, it's a term used to describe people who identify their gender as something outside of traditional Western concepts of male and female as a binary. We also reference intersex people, which is uh, a definition sometimes referred to in quite a pathologizing way as disorders of sex development. And generally it refers to people whose chromosomal or gen genital makeup is something that falls outside of traditional sex categories of male and female. Hello, you're listening to Sexual Transmissions with me, Esther, and sexual health doctors, Jaja and Frankie. Have you ever thought of going for a sexual health checkup, but were too embarrassed at what they might ask? Are your sexual fantasies very different to your sexual reality? Have you had your fill of pterodactyl porn and you're wondering where to go next? Whether you're a sexual novice or seasoned in the sheets, this is a chance to talk about sex and to think about pleasurable, safe ways of having sex that will help protect your body and your mind. From testing to infections, sex positive mentality to gender identity, chemsex to fetish, each week we'll talk about a different aspect of sex, sexual health and well-being. We're all thinking about sex, so let's talk about it. Welcome to Sexual Transmissions. Hello, you're tuned in to Sexual Transmissions, your very own sexual health show. I'm Esther and I'm joined by our resident sex experts, Jar Jar. Hey there. And Frankie. Hi. So today we're going to be talking all about gender identity in our last episode of our first ever series. I know. Well, it's just flown, hasn't it? <laughs> well, it hasn't. We've, we have had breaks between episodes, but it's a joy to get to this point. Um, what a ride it's been. Um, so we're very, very excited on our, I was going to say last ever episode, it's not, um, on this episode to have a guest with us, um, virtually of course. So it gives me great joy to introduce Aidan Walton, who is a sexual health advisor and social worker. So Aidan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me guys. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I hope that you enjoy the ride. As I just said before we started recording, we're a very well-oiled machine here. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lie so um so Aidan is a social worker and sexual health advisor as I mentioned um who's worked to support his fellow trans non-binary community members in various contexts over the last decade in this time he's designed and delivered a number of health and well-being initiatives for gender diverse people and their partners at a busy central London clinic he's also written about trans and non-binary issues for publications like 
The Guardian, Vice and Attitude magazine. So you've been bloody busy um, and doing wonderful things. So <laughs> um, you don't look convinced, but I'm convinced. Well, welcome. Thrilled to have you. So before um, we get stuck in, we've got, obviously we're all recording remotely, but um, Jar Jar um, has actually moved to La, La Belle Paris. So, <laughs> Well, GCSE French kicking in there. Um, Jaja, how are you? How are you finding life in life in Paris? Yes, yes. Um, so I, I've just moved here temporarily, just for the just for the summer, just to um, you know enjoy a little bit of a change of scenery. And it's um, uh, très magnifique here. Um, I would say. <laughs> yes. Um, still haven't quite got on top of the French. I don't. I, I, I moved here without speaking basically a lick of French, but but we're getting there slowly. Yeah. And, and the people are just very, very lovely. Everyone's friendly, wonderful weather, wonderful food, very happy. Very good. Well, given the fact that, um, you know, Jar Jar's in Paris, I thought it was only appropriate to ask you the question on the listeners' minds, which is, <laughs> if you were a pastry, what would you be and why? And anyone can start that off. Um, no, I won't give my answer first because I need to think of it. Okay, okay, I can I can start us off since yes, I've been. Jaja. Well, you should be a pro by now. You should surrounded, be surrounded. Yeah, I, I practically am a pastry. I've been just <laughs> surrounded by gorgeous, gorgeous pastries um, all day, every day. Um, so there's this beautiful pastry called a religieuse, which I think it's supposed Ooh. to. I guess it's supposed to kind of like symbolize a an old church. <laughs> it sounds a bit weird. I think that's where the name came from. Um, that's not why I necessarily think it, it's a pet pastry. That <laughs> <eats> me. <laughs> it's not. But um, um, although I am spiritual, I wouldn't say I'm religious, but I am spiritual. But the reason I think I uh, this pastry shoots me, it's quite it's quite a tall pastry. It's like two uh, puff pastries kind of stacked on top of each other. So it's quite elongated. I'm quite a tall person. The, yeah. the the puff pastry is quite like a caramelly brown color, and I'm like pretty caramel brown color myself. Mm. Um, it's, it has like this topping of like usually like an icing kind of kind of like a a little bit of like a sugar chocolatey topping, so quite sweet on the outside, and on the inside is this like beautiful cream, like this light fluffy silky smooth cream, and I think I'm quite. <laughs> I was going to say crazy on the inside. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> this has just gone. This is just. I should have just gone with baguette. You know. It's, <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's a common. Set yourself up for that one, Georgia. <laughs> I absolutely love that. But when you said the church initially, I was like, I guess Jar Jar's church-like, you know, people, people gather, hear your wisdom. Um, wonderful. So that was a, what, sorry, patient? A religieuse. Religieuse. Don't ask me to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the show, I will, I'm joking. Um, okay. Uh, Frankie, what pastry would you be and why? Aiden, do you want to go first? Because I'm still thinking. Are you ready? I haven't got a, a specific name, but it would have to be, I think, on the basis of my glowing ginger beard, which your listeners unfortunately are unable to see, it would have to be something have to be something ginger-based. Mm. Oh yeah. Ginger-based <laughs> pastry. Because it's not a gingerbread man is not a pastry. This is the thing. Can it be close enough? I mean, I, you know, I'm more about inclusivity. If yeah, we yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A little wider. Sorry, you know what? I uh, thought I was too. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so I take what I said back. It's it can it is a pastry. I'm very out of character, Esther. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. When it comes to baking, though, I'm very strict. 
Um, Frankie, are you ready? I think so. Also, I'm I'm more of a savoury person, so I was just going to say a classic sausage roll, but then I didn't really know how to describe myself as that. So I'm I'm just I don't know what you know how that is me. So I'm going to go for a tart citron because it's like a bit a bit zesty. It's a people pleaser (laughs) in some ways, Um, but it's got a little something to it. You can like dust some icing sugar on the top, like zhuzh it up a little bit. Why don't you put a little mint leaf on? You know, or maybe a raspberry. Hello. (laughs) Oh, hello. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm going to stick to. I'm sorry that wasn't on the spot (laughs) decision. so sold by it. That I'm is so great. And if I was a sausage roll, so there we yeah. go. Tarto <laughs> citron. Great. And what about you, Esther? Oh, you always trying to escape. Um, I would say <laughs> that if I was a pastry, I'd be, I'd be a yum yum. Have you ever had a yum yum? <laughs> yum yums are so good. Yes, you told me be a yum yum. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Well, if the shoe fits. <laughs> But why I'd be a yum yum is probably because they, they, they taste like a donut, but they don't look like one. <laughs> and I'd say that means something about me, but I'm not sure <laughs> what it is. Um, well, now we've done the pastry, <laughs> pastry segment, we'll um, move on to um, our topic today, which I'm really, really excited to get into, actually. So, um, as I said, we're going to be talking all about gender identity, which is an absolutely huge topic. Um, one which is you know full of debate at the moment around the world um, online and um, so it feels like a really interesting time to have this conversation Um, you might be thinking as a sexual health and well-being podcast kind of what's the relevance why you know why this topic Um, and actually like we did in previous episodes we want to start conversations that kind of get us and also anyone listening thinking and um, questioning what we've thought to this point um, and just learning a bit about it that we might not have have known and also I guess gender identity sexuality all of that is is about you know who you are and expressing yourself and um, whether or not that is also accepted by society and how easy it is to be yourself how enabled that is and we've always said that you know your kind of sexual health that's a big part of it sex is a huge part of your identity so to start with, as it is such a big topic and quite a lot of aspects of it have been quite heavily debated, um, I don't know if it's just me, but I think there's quite a lot of confusion. I know I've been kind of confused. You know, what is gender identity as a starting point? So how, how can we define it? Um, so I thought I'd read out a little quote from Judith Butler, who I studied back in the day in sociology in the University of York, which um, was um, part of my part of my degree, which was a surprise to be enjoyed, actually. But I remember Judith. And when it came to gender identity, she said the following. So we act as if that be- that being of a man or that being of a woman is actually an internal reality or something that is simply true about us, a fact about us. But actually, it's a phenomenon that is being produced all the time and reproduced all the time. So to say gender is performative is to say that nobody really is a gender from the start. So I thought I'd put Judith out there as a little starting point um, to get the ball rolling. But what do you think? Do you think that's that's a fair kind of definition of gender identity? Or would you say that you feel differently? Um, I mean, I personally, I love the work of Judith Butler, and I think she's started a lot of really interesting and long overdue conversations around gender. I think sometimes we 
have this separation between gender and biological sex where we hinge one as being socially produced or an internal sense and the other one as being immutable scientific fact. I guess the the difficulty is that that second category or those second categories of uh, sex as male and female aren't the immutable fact that we get taught in um, GCSE biology but I think um, Unpicking that is uh, is a big conversation, but I think Judith Butler, in terms of the difference between sex and gender, is a really good starting point. What do you think, Frankie and Jaja? I think um, I think that's a really interesting conversation start and introduction to the topic. I think yeah, that, you know, for people to you know people's relationship to their gender and to what that means and as part of their identity is a very very personal thing, and I think it's very reductive for people to just say being female means one thing being male means one thing or, or equally anything other than that if, you know lots of people who are non-binary and and who are or who identify as a, a gender which was not their assigned gender they have that right to have that relationship and that um, journey with themselves to identify and I feel like who is anyone else to say otherwise um, so I think it, yeah I think gender is not a black and white you're this or you're this topic and I think mm. that, that quote is quite a good way to start that conversation. Yeah um, absolutely I think it's really it, it's actually a really really hard thing to try and define gender and as Aidan was saying like I know there's been kind of this divide as being like uh, you know I've heard gender being used kind of like more in the sense of a quote-unquote performance or the roles that you adopt or kind of like in in that kind of language, yeah, a role that you adopt. But I don't think it it's necessarily that simple either. I think mm. it's it's just influenced by so many things. Yes, there are societal factors that you know influence gender and quote unquote gender roles. So the typical kinds of actions or attributes that you know we define as probably in in a most traditional sense as feminine or masculine. You know, like the social roles that we would see those people filling, but. I think there's also so much like internal identification that comes with gender and what that means to a person. It's not just about roles. It's not just about playing a part. It's about how you feel that may or may not be linked as well with the biology you have. So whether you have a penis or a vagina or in some people who are born in medical conditions where people are born with remnants of both, you know, Uh, so whatever kind of spectrum you have of that with your physical being there's also an entire spectrum of how you can feel with what your gender is. And I know, you know, there's more and more people who say that they don't even feel that they can identify with the typical genders that we would have normally defined as, you know, even human, quote unquote, human gender. So I think it's like really fascinating. It's really, really complex. And I think if you talk to a million different people, you could get a million different definitions of what gender identity is and what gender is. And they would probably have all some some points of validity within them. So. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's almost like in asking the question, I thought, actually, even by asking that question to define it, is that helpful? Why not be? Why, why do we need to pin it down, I guess? Um, yeah, I think I know that sometimes um, definitions um, can be harmful um, and segregating and confining. But I think it's also human nature to try and understand something. And I think language is really important. I think I've probably said it before on this podcast, but I really believe that discourse shapes thought. So the way that we talk about something affects the way we think about it. And it's not that we we have to have, you know, the same, same definitions. And it's not that those definitions won't change over time. But I think that, you know, as humans, we do need to communicate with each other. And there is validity in trying to kind of less so pin down an exact definition, more so understanding what 
that definition is to someone else and how that affects their life. You know, it's at the end of the day, it's about understanding each other, right? That's what we need language for. So I think there is, there is validity in trying to express it um, and, and share those expressions. Absolutely. And I guess as part of that, having of a definition or um, I guess having the language to describe those things, I was thinking about um, how gender identity um, had been seen, it had been something that had been, well, actually, I'll, I'll, quote, I'll quote the thing. So I think the, um, the World Health Organization no longer categorized transgender as a mental disorder. But, you know, I'm sure listeners will be as surprised as I was to learn that this was last year. Um, so, and, and, you know, Jar Jar and Frankie, you know, both of you have medical training, etc. Um, so kind of, I guess, how does, how does that sit with you? That the, I guess, and, and where does the kind of, I guess we've talked about, you know, the def, defining it. But um, I guess with that, that's, that's defining something as a, as a mental disorder. And that's, yes, change is happening in some places in the world, but, you know, it's in a very different place in other parts. So what was, what's your take as people that have been through the kind of the medical side of it? I think to define it as a mental disorder is extremely damaging and in so many ways gives the impression that that person's identity and that their their gender um, and who they are is not valid. It's something that can be fixed. So if someone doesn't conform to conventional gender roles or um, gender identity, um, it's like it's giving to define it as a mental disorder implies that there's something wrong with them to feel that way. Um, and it's something that they would need treatment for to not feel that way, rather than that their identity that is genuine and is, is who they are, is the person that they should be allowed to be. Yeah, and, we, and we've seen this before, even with, you know, homosexuality, you know, being considered previously, you know, a mental illness and, and having with it all of the stigma and issues that Frankie have highlighted. And we were speaking before, um, you know, this episode with Aiden, and Aiden, I, I, I just remember you saying like how difficult it was that having to, to one, fit this criteria of diagnosis and how that might impact people who might feel that they are struggling mm. with their gender identity or figuring that out and, and how that can um, impact, you know, access to services and things like that. It was fascinating to hear. I, I don't know if you, would you mind sharing with us, Aiden, again, kind of like the, the official criteria that needs to be met. Um, and I, I believe it's the official term we use is gender dysphoria. Would you mind sharing with us, you know, that, that definition, how that, that impacts? Um, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so in uh, the DSM, so the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for the American Psychiatric Association, which is where they classify all mental health conditions. So the ICD is uh, European WHO moving away from this. In DSM, we've still got the categorization of gender dysphoria, and that's usually accompanied or categorized by discomfort or distress concerning incongruence between one's assigned gender and their gender as they either experience it or um, you know, kind of feel it in an internal sense, uh, or also strong desire to be considered uh, a member of the inverted commas opposite sex is also one of the things that comes up in the definition. 
There's quite a few things wrong, I think, with um, the diagnosis in terms of ignoring trans people who may or may not experience gender dysphoria. I think we have to recognise that a lot of trans or non-binary people might just know that they're trans without having to uh, you know, have a certain level of distress related to certain parts of their identity or certain parts of their body. All of the research that contributed to these uh, diagnostic sort of criteria being drawn up came from existing gender identity services where we've got loads of research that says, um, you know, trans people tend to sort of produce a very reductive version of themselves in these situations in order to try and make sure that they're kind of ticking the boxes that the person in front of them is looking for. So um, it's a, a few a few bits and pieces that I think once the, the DSM catches up with the ICD, we'll be happy to kind of let go of a little bit. And what are the what are the implications of that you mentioned about the kind of the being the being of the reductive as you as you just mentioned? What what are the implications of that for trans people? Um, some, I mean, something that's definitely come up in a lot of research and a lot of conversations that I've had with people over the years is that if genital surgery is something that they're hoping to be part of their care pathway, they may present at a gender identity clinic with either a relatively asexual version of themselves and sometimes a relatively heterosexual version of themselves because way back that actually used to be part of the criteria. Heterosexuality was kind of a a mechanism for diagnosis. yeah, if you didn't identify as heterosexual, you may have come into some pretty significant problems in gender identity clinics up until wow. I think the mid '90s. But obviously, that's got quite a quite a long hangover. Mm. Uh, so we, you know, we see people presenting this version of themselves that doesn't allow people to offer care pathways or signposts to things that might be useful. So if you're mm. somebody that's got a lot of risk in relation to sex or sex work or domestic violence relating to sex work or transactional sex in terms of housing and all these kind of things, if you're presenting as a very sort of asexual person, I don't even look at my genitals, let alone use them. Um, obviously, all of those potential areas where people can say, well, actually, there's, there's support for this or maybe testing for HIV or hepatitis C would be useful in this situation. So there's, um, there's a lot of missed opportunities from the way that I think as a community, we're often asked to sort of present our narratives. So I guess in terms of the support services that are, um, that are available, what, you know, what does that, what does that look like? What are the, is it ever too early or too late to consider, to consider your options? And what are those? I guess aside from the diagnostic aspect, there's a, a few problems with the health system in the UK as it relates to our community. Um, waiting lists for services are really, really long. So usually if I speak to people at the very early stages of wondering you know, if their gender identity is something that is incongruent with the sex that they were assigned at birth, because the waiting list for services is usually between two and four years from GP referral to your first appointment. I would always say to people, even if it feels premature, it's too early, get yourself onto the waiting list because the worst thing that can happen is by the time you get to the top of it, you don't need that service. Um, Mm. But also in terms of accessing community services. I think sometimes at the early stages, people might be reluctant because they're either not far enough along in the process to think that other people might think, whether are they trans enough? You know, they don't dress a certain way. Should they be at this support group when actually, you know, they're Trevor in 91% of their life? So is it something that I can ask for community support about at such an early stage? Um, And I think it's really important to kind of explore this and access support 
from the community, but also from potentially from family members and from from clinical services as well. Speaking to one person recently about the early stages and where do we go and what can I do next? Um, I think they're a little bit concerned that if I start on the early stages of exploring my gender identity, does this mean I'm I'm disappearing down a rabbit hole that I can't mm. possibly get out of? And I think that's uh, a little bit to do with the kind of the, the Daily Mail description of, uh, you know, the trans community as being sort of actively recruiting. And uh, as soon as you even mention questions around how you, you know, construct your gender and your, your gender identity, um, you know, you're going to be on the, on the list for surgery and in and out and a, a different person by, by next Wednesday. Um, and I think that can... <laughs> That, that can really frighten people, but I also think that's not the, uh, it's very much not the reality. And I think there's, there's support there for people if, if they need it. Absolutely. Because I, I guess that makes me think, you know, how certain does one have to be to start that questioning process and like reaching out to service? It's almost like, um, I feel like sometimes there's that kind of message in general, like you need to really, we talked about this actually in terms of just going to a sexual health clinic actually to get maybe, you know, first screening, like, I need to know, I need to have all the answers. I need to be sure of X, Y, and Z before I actually speak to a professional about what my options could be or just talk it out. Um, and we will, you know, discuss the fact that that's just not necessarily, you know, there isn't that expectation on you to, to be sure. Um, and the, the kind of pressure to be sure and, you know, to not, to not have all the answers, to have all the answers, sorry, um, can be, can be damaging and can be a real hindrance to getting the information at the time that you could really most benefit from it, whatever the outcome. Because I guess the health professionals, I imagine you're not there to kind of, to judge. Um, and you're there, you know, to help that person find the best answer for them, whatever that is. Not to say it is definitely this, actually. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I mean, I just sometimes speak to people in the early stages of exploring their gender and they say, like, I, I just want you to tell me if I'm trans or not. Oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, I, I can't do that for you. Um, so it's, it's such an individual journey and it's such an individual experience. And I think sometimes people just want to, to know so that they can sort of work out, okay, well, where do I go from here? But sometimes that, that process is a, is a really slow one and it might relate in transition and it might relate in a reevaluation of your gender identity, even if it is congruent to the one that you were assigned at birth. And when you kind of get that kind of question, um, you know, can you just tell me, how do you kind of respond to that? Because obviously it's so case by case and yeah. so individual um, to, you know, where that question is coming from for each person. But, you know, if that, if anyone's listening and is kind of thinking those thoughts, like what, how, what's your general sort of response to that? Um, I mean, it is such an, a, an individual thing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I think asking people to ask themselves questions that um, are sort of common to the trans experience. I think there's lots of resources out there that can support people to do that. There's an excellent book uh, from a non-binary author called Meg John Barker, mm. who's a psychologist who wrote a book which is super accessible, not overly academic, not overly clinical, uh, called How to Understand Your Gender. And I think it, it asks people to do a lot of the self-reflection that I might talk about with people in my consultations. And it's interesting to know that that self-reflection is, is, is kind of a built-in part of that process as well. Which, because, you know, I, I don't know if that would be in what people would assume either way, but um, is that, does that come quite early on? I imagine so. Or, do, or can it be kind of revisited as well? What, what does that look like in the process? 
I, I mean, I think it's it's an ongoing thing, and I think um, you know, in terms of my identity, I'm 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 still learning stuff about my gender and my identity, sort of ten, fifteen mm. years after kind of first asking myself those questions. And I think um, as as with so many things, I think it's um, you know, it's a, a lifetime project, isn't it? Absolutely, and that is managing expectations in itself. That you know, I guess we do sometimes with certain certain parts of I don't know our health. We might think of, you know, you know, what is we think of antibiotics or we think of a solution in certain ways. And we might not think of things in, t- in those time frames um, of a kind of like, you know, even Frankie and Jar Jar have said, you know, people can come back for, to the clinic. <laughs> they can return and we can have an ongoing conversation about certain things. It doesn't have to be a one stop shop where you kind of get it, you know, and then you're left to your own devices and you're on your own. It sounds like that's very much not the case. You know, it's not, you know, you don't tap in and then off you go to figure out the rest alone. And you're speaking to people that also might not, might have a bit of an idea of where you're coming from as well. I was just going to say that um, I think it's important to remember that exactly as Jar Jar said, gender is a spectrum. And when, in my the way that I process it is that it's a kind of infinite spectrum. Mm. And I think for someone to maybe come in and ask Aiden or any of any other healthcare professionals, like, am I trans? Am I this? Am I this? People feel comfort in having labels and having like that fixed identity and that fixed role. But for a lot of people, you know, for being trans, doesn't mean one thing it can mean a whole number of things some people it means you know how they see themselves how they how they present themselves to the outside world for some they they use hormones for some people they want surgery for some people they don't and it's like being trans isn't just one thing and also there is for for many people a lot of fluidity to their gender and it can they may not conform to what people would conventionally call one gender or the other or non-binary they kind of there is there is some movement to that as well um which for many people it can feel uncomfortable because they just want to be like i'm this um but that's not how gender works as well so it's kind of also having that discussion with people that you know it's if they're having those questions and and wanting to open that conversation about their gender that exactly as Aidan says that is an ongoing process which they will be having those conversations lifelong. I was wondering as well because we've spoken a bit about um, the individual's perspective um, who might be seeking a service or asking themselves those questions but I was wondering kind of in a healthcare setting amongst healthcare professionals what is awareness like of trans health? There's a lot a lot, a lot of work to be done. I'm sure Frankie would agree in, in medical school, you know, kind of coming from, uh, from a medical point of view, where I think we were taught, we had maybe a one day session on, you know, trans health, and that is not comprehensive by, by any means, you know, there's no representation from the trans community to kind of like, you know, actually give life to that, to that, that that lived experience, which I think is, is so important, you know, it's something that you know you can't just read in a book and and understand and having that level of someone who who has that lived experience explain you know what it's like what it feels like what are the challenges what are the health issues around that it's not something that you're going to get it from a half day in medical school i personally hadn't to my knowledge at least anyway uh treated any trans patients until i was one day sat in a clinic and in one of the sexual health clinics and then i was right sat across from you know a young trans woman and then i am expected to kind of like you know provide professional advice for that person and i just had to be very honest and i just had to ask questions in the most respectful way as i could possible and say this is the first 
experience for me. You know, I remember telling her that and say, you know, we're going to have to go through some definitions together. Like this is new and consult with seniors, you know, who are, that are in the field. But, you know, all of a sudden I'm sat in a clinic and there's a, a trans patient in front of me and there's a gap in that experience. And I'm sure that I'm not the only person that has experienced that because trans people are, you know, accessing other services as well. They're accessing GP services, they're mm. accessing any services. And, you know, th- th- there, there needs to be a, a lot more work around this. And there's, again, health issues run the full gamut for a trans person. It is, especially if they depending on if they're using hormones, if they've gone through surgery, there's so many things to consider. And I know Frankie's definitely illustrated that, you know, in examples before and kind of the complexities of trans health. Um, It doesn't just start and stop with, oh, I'm trans now. Okay, I've accepted that. Mm. Trans trans women who are, um, you know, you know, or sorry, trans men who were previously women, you know, by sex, still have to think about things like menopause, they still have to think about things like pregnancy. You know, those those issues don't go away. And I think there needs to be a lot more work to create holistic services around trans individuals. I think that's really important. And even just terminology of people's genitalia, like how people want to be um, referred to, I think it's like it has to be something that you're very individually tailor that consultation to that person. And that person isn't just a gender identity and that's all they are. They are human being and, and you can say to that person, what would you like me to call you? Can I discuss genitals and can I discuss this? What are you comfortable when you explain what you're doing rather than being like, panicking about it or expecting to offend someone I think if you just just literally sit there generally and be make that person feel comfortable I think it's our job as healthcare professionals to make that person feel comfortable not for them to like apologize for themselves to us it like they should we should be creating an environment especially when we're talking about very intimate issues where they feel seen they feel heard and they feel that they are being acknowledged and their health needs are being met the same as anyone else would be um, irrespective of what of what genitalia, of what gender they were assigned, of all of those things, they shouldn't have to compensate for that. I think it's our responsibility to learn for that. And as Jaja said, unfortunately, I, I feel the same in medical school that, that our exposure to that is lacking and has a lot more room to improve. But that's something that I think all of us need to work on. Definitely. I mean, Aidan, is that something, you know, as in your experience as a sexual health advisor and social worker as well, um, in those fields, do you feel like there's, do you, have you felt that gap? Uh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely in terms of interactions with patient service users, uh, but also in terms of delivering training to colleagues in other disciplines, but often within a health setting, sometimes it is quite worrying to experience the, the lack of knowledge. And I think usually that's more around cultural sensitivity than it is around clinical issues. Um, it's really difficult to know how to approach and improve trans health in certain settings uh, without overcomplicating things because mm. I think a lot of the time um, trans people get constructed as these completely different types of human that don't have the same bodies or don't have the same difficulties and you know sometimes we've got acid reflux or a broken arm and that is not that <laughs> yeah. complicated it's, it's just the same as the other bodies that pass through those services so it's um, it's really hard to find the balance where we don't other the community so much that it hampers improvement. Um, but around cultural sensitivity, there is, um, there's a lot of, of work to be done. And I think uh, sometimes people can get caught out by not wanting to ask the wrong question. Mm. That they sometimes don't ask any questions. And I, you know, as a, 
as a healthcare provider, but also as a recipient of services, sometimes I, f- I feel like the right questions aren't being asked because people, you know, for very well-meaning reasons, don't want to get it wrong. But that means that we miss so much in these consultations because people are, are panicking about how to ask questions respectfully. I think sometimes we need to address our own discomfort and not having all the answers mm-hmm. because it is it is acceptable and sometimes it's the best answer to say, you know, to say to people, I don't know the answer, but we're going to work it out and that's fine. I can't give it to you mm-hmm. today, but I'm going to go away and I'm going to find it and we'll work out whatever it is that we need to do. Whereas um, sometimes I think that's a, a very uncomfortable ground for especially people in medical professions to be in because um, you guys are supposed to be there to have the answers and it's mm-hmm. a hard, hard thing to hard thing to broach, I think. What would your um, advice be on um, if, if, you know, people listening and thinking, gosh, yeah, like I kind of I, I absolutely see the point that it's better to say than not to absolutely wouldn't want to in any way other someone. And even like not if you're a healthcare professional. Um, but what would your advice be for kind of like how to approach those kinds of interactions um, to, to have them rather than to to um, to almost mitigate the, the panic, not say anything at all thing? Yeah, um, I think one thing that's that's really helpful to normalise in a range of different settings, not just in healthcare, um, is asking people about which pronouns feel most comfortable for them and mm-hmm. recognising that uh, the pronouns that people use may not be congruent with the gender identity that you would expect them to be and that that's okay. I think that's a a really helpful way of approaching people and to to be able to put it in the context of, I want to be able to refer to you as respectfully as possible. So in order to do that, can I ask which pronouns you use? I think that can Mm -hmm. be helpful. That's great advice. And you're right, that can be in kind of multiple settings rather than just in a healthcare one. I guess people would rather you asked than either assume or, you know, shy away from it in a way. And Aidan, you've obviously been, you know, involved um, in designing and delivering kind of a number of um, health and wellbeing initiatives for gender diverse people and their partners. What kind of, um, would you like to share about the the sort of work that you're doing and um, for anyone, anyone listening? Um, so not necessarily specific to my role, but I think very, very much so over the last sort of five years, a lot of clinical spaces and a lot of providers are becoming a much safer space for trans people and non-binary people to explore different aspects of their life. I think um, sexual health is a particularly fertile ground for improving and um kind of tailoring services for marginalized groups. I think a lot of the services that we've got at the moment were obviously a product of HIV and AIDS activism in the 1980s. Is a part of healthcare provision, which is generally staffed by really progressive, uh, really interesting, sensitive people. And I think um, sexual health is something that's been left out of the conversation around gender identity so much over the years. actually we've got parts of the community where we see HIV rates significantly higher than other groups who aren't trans and loads of additional sort of vulnerabilities where actually I think we're finally starting to see services set up to not only sort of address those issues but also sort of recognize people where they are provide support that feels like it really fits for them so um, despite a lot of the media conversation in the last couple of years but specifically the last six months I think has been pretty unpleasant for a lot of the community and if we can come out of the media bubble and look at actually what's happening in service provision and in community provision 
I think it's a really exciting time. Absolutely. Talking of kind of resources um, and good places to start, what, what would, what, are there some that you would recommend for um, anyone listening or not who might be kind of questioning their own gender or, um, or might have a friend who, who they've spoken to who's kind of raised that, you know, with them or a family member? Um, you know, I guess this isn't just a point for trans people or people at any part of their journey, but also for kind of like others who aren't um, and how we can all kind of support each other um, in this conversation. So what would your what would your advice be for both um, people that are kind of starting to question or and also their kind of close people around them, but might also be um, someone that they've spoken to rather than maybe a service or seen looked at a resource? I think if people are at the stage where they're not quite ready to engage with services in whatever context that might be, um, I think looking at community-driven work, authors, um, media content, I think sometimes being able to, to see your experience in other people can mm. be a really, really helpful starting point. Um, and that can be a really helpful starting point for partners, friends, family members as well to start engaging with the issue and, and working out ways to maybe support people or ask questions that feel helpful. Um, and there's, you know, in terms of community output, again, that's something that's really increased in the last sort of five years or so. There's, there's so many amazing trans authors, there's showrunners on Netflix who are mm. making documentaries, making drama series that are about trans experience. That can be a really powerful thing for us as a community to see but also for our friends, families, partners and people who, who want to support us as well. Absolutely. I, yeah, I, there's so many different, I guess, ways of getting those perspectives as well. Like even um, in sort of, you know, thinking about this, this particular episode, um, I, I absolutely love a podcast ofs, um, but I was listening to a great one called What the Trans. Um, and also there's on BBC Sounds, um, it's called um, NB Might colon my non-binary life um and the um protagonist of you you see their journey from kind of like just coming to terms with that understanding it and um sharing that and different different phases it's really really good it's, it's very um kind of first hand um and it's a wonderfully produced pod as well so yeah there's there's so basically when you look you find as frankie said um so you know there's 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 so much there's so much out there mm, and um, i think uh, that's the case with community resources as well in terms of services um, so obviously there's some trans-led uh, national charities that do amazing work but for people that aren't in metropolitan areas um, I think it's it's really helpful like you said though, so if you look you'll find it so if you were to look on uh, local Facebook groups or if you were to google trans non-binary resources in your area even if you think oh my god I must be the only trans person for 50 miles um, <laughs> it's not often the case um, and actually there is you know there's community out there um, you've just got to know where to find it. Absolutely and Frankie and Jarjo, is anything kind of from from your worlds that um, has been has been a useful resource or um, way of thinking or anything that you'd like to share? Um, no, I think exactly. I think Aidan's covered it very well. Actually, there's high profile people like influencers and people on social media. People like maybe Munro Bergdorf. There's like Alok Menon. There's another um, a trans man who's just puts a really really good post called um, Skyler. Baylor there's like there's lot there's so many resources out there and there's so much literature um and I think you know kind of as a you know this year people do seem to be talking about 
equality and issues a lot more. And so I think it's, it's literally all out there. It's very easy to find um, about how to be a trans ally and also support for if you are having exactly um, any um, questioning your gender in any way or form. Um, and then also I think it's important to be aware of resources as well, you know, as regards um, mental health. We've made it very, very clear mm. that there's absolutely not a mental health problem. However, there are higher mental health rates um, of pro- problems in the trans community and the non-binary community as a result pretty much of sometimes trauma of going through the process and of the way that society treats people because of ignorance and not understanding um, so I think it's really really is our responsibility irrespective of our gender to learn about these issues so that we don't add to that. Yeah I think and I think it just goes back to that individuality I mean people are people are complex people are different you just have to take the time to allow them to share their own story you know share their own definitions with you um, rather than trying to impose your own construction on people of course we're all going to have our own biases you know that's normal that's human nature it's how you kind of react to those and kind of just you know as Aiden said you know rather than being so worried about asking the right questions or saying the wrong thing just in general, if you're just polite and treat that person decently, you know, mm-hmm. you know, in general, not only around issues around gender identity, but just in in in, in everyday life with all different questions. Um, if if you if you show that you're truly, um, you know, coming from a place of sincerity and 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 just trying to to get an answer and being honest, open and honest about the, the things you might not know, then I think people will respond to that. And I think it's just important to remember that. Remember humanity. Absolutely. And the spectrum within that, it sounds like, you know, from our, from our conversation on this episode, we've been kind of looking, re- well, remembering that there's a big old spectrum that often we can't see. Um, and, you know, people sit on all different points on that spectrum. And their, their experience is a combination of so many things that aren't necessarily shared with us. Um, or um, just in general, you know, we're all, we can't see half the stuff that affects us. And um, the question is, you know, do services reflect that spectrum? Do they cater for it? Um, Or is it more of a kind of like, you're either this or you're this, which one will help you fit into either. But it sounds like there's some really interesting initiatives out there that are, you know, really trying to be where the person is and start from that point. Um, And there's good stuff happening, which is great to hear of. But I think it's kind of like, it's great to know of it. And hopefully we've tried to get to share some of that and make some of that known and also point to where there's potential areas or gaps for improvement and where some of those barriers could be. Because, you know, lived experiences, by, by sharing that, I guess that's how... Um, will connect others so um, the more the merrier really I guess that's probably all we have time for today Um, thank you so much Aidan for joining us you're welcome and good luck with all of the all of the work you're doing as well thank Um, you in terms of resources quite a few have kind of come up during this episode so if you're listening and um, you've forgotten them like I have already that's fine we'll pop them on our socials and in the description of SoundCloud, you'll find all the all the relevant things that have come up. But just to name um, a, f- a few, a few more, um, if you're listening. Um, so there's Switchboard, which is an LGBT plus helpline, which is open 10 to 10 every day. 
and um, we will put the kind of details for that um, in our socials and on SoundCloud. There's also Mindline Trans Plus, um, which is a confidential emotional mental health support line for people who identify as transgender, agender, gender fluid, non-binary. That's open two evenings a week, Monday to Fridays from 8pm to midnight. Um, there's also Gendered Intelligence, which is a really interesting um, charity. Um, they exist to increase the quality of trans people's life experiences, especially those of young trans people. Um, and there's, there's um, obviously the wonderful 5016 Street, which, you know, Frankie's always repping. Um, so um, uh, they're a HIV and sexual health NHS clinic in, in Soho. Um, and they offer kind of emergency appointments and other online services. Um, but if you go on the website, there's absolutely loads and loads of really useful support as well as the more medical side of things. So definitely check that out. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to mention a few of those, but you have to remember any of them. If you're still with us, that is lovely if so. Um, so this episode brings us to the end of our very first series of sexual transmissions. So um, collapse all round that here, here we still are. It's been, it's been an absolute joy. So um, we've loved doing this and we hope it's been as fun for you as it has been for us. We've covered lots of different topics. It's all been a bit of an experiment. So um, we've kind of wanted, we're new to this. So we thought, well, we'll try different formats out. We'll, we'll explore different topics in different ways. That's very much what we've been up to. But, you know, safe to say we've learned absolutely bucket loads. Well, I've absolutely learned loads about sexual health, but I didn't know near 10, which has been great. So basically, I wanted to massively thank our resident sex experts, Jaja and Frankie. Um, and thank you also to Patrick and Millie. Patrick edits everything. He's a magician. You just can't see him. And Millie, who um, helps us really think through the podcast and plan everything and think about how we say things. It's all behind the scenes, but it's extremely important and it's a wonderful team. So, and thank you to you, lovely listener, for joining us. Um, thanks for coming over. Thanks for joining us. So remember, staying safe is staying sexy. And um, with that, I'll love you and leave you. So until next time, goodbye.